The prophet Isaiah says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth. Would you all please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Advent for us begins in the dark. And of course, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around this strange beginning, not only to a season, but to a new year in the life of the church. After all, as I said, the sanctuary has changed. Gone are the white sheets of Christ the King Sunday. Tucked away are the green banners from ordinary time. No, today is a new day in the life of this church and in each of our lives. Today is a day of blue and of purple, of royalty and repentance. Today we begin in the dark. For many churches in many places, Advent is nothing but a season of light, of joy, of hope, of surprise. Pastors like me will sprinkle their sermons with tidings of good cheer and we wish you Merry Christmas. The sentiment of the season for many churches is smiles and laughter and a bright, shining light. But for Isaiah, it's a different word. From ages past, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you, O Lord, you who work for those who wait. You meet those who gladly do right, those who remember you in all your ways. But you were angry, and we sinned. Because you hid yourself, we transgressed. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth. Although the time of Isaiah differs very much from our own, there are some similarities between what the prophet experienced and what each of us experiences. For instance, we know, like Isaiah, that our reliance on this political accumulation of power, rather than a pursuit of love and divine justice, it's brought us even further into the darkness. We know, like Isaiah, that our culture has less to do with the peace of God and more to do with individual hopes and ambitions. We know, like Isaiah, the temptation to throw everything, everything into violent forms of power and forgetting completely the people we ask to do that violence on our behalf. From the dark place of reflection, we read Isaiah's words about God tearing open the heavens and God shaking the foundations of the earth. <clears throat> but when we try to imagine that in our minds, we don't think of the new heaven and the new earth from Revelation. Instead, we have visions of devastating destruction. We conjure up in our minds those images of floods and earthquakes and perhaps even nuclear war. During Advent, we might want our God to look more like the chubby man in white who slithers down our chimneys but Isaiah presents us with an image of God who is angry and who is silent. And that is the tension of Advent. The words from the prophet are even harder for some of us to hear when we've already put up the tree, when we've already hung all the lights, when we've already tuned our radio stations to the never-ending Christmas cycle. But Advent has always been about the time of judgment and the time of promise. It has always been a time of darkness. 
We have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth. We have sinned, and God has moved away from us. Last week in our Sunday school class, we were debating this never-ending conversation that we have about forgiveness. The kind of conversation you have, well, what if somebody did this to me? Should I still really forgive them? What about the time that I did this to another person? Should they forgive me for what I've done? And we debated this. We went back and forth about what might be outside the realm of forgiveness these days. And someone in our class, I won't say who it was, but he said, well, it's one thing to talk about individual forgiveness, but what about when an entire people does something so wrong? Like, what do we do about Germany? What do we do about an entire nation that did everything in its power to destroy the world, to indiscriminately murder people just because of who they were? What do we do about Japan and what they did to us on Pearl Harbor? How can we ever forgive a nation for what they've done to us? I thought that was a really challenging word. I mean, how do we handle that? But because I like being controversial, I took it another step forward. I said, well, it's one thing for us to talk about what nations have done to us, but what about us? What about taking a good hard look in the mirror and wondering about things we've done to other people? Should we ever be forgiven for what we did to black bodies for centuries? Should we ever be forgiven for what we did to Native American bodies for centuries and still do to this day? Should we ever be forgiven for the atrocities we as a nation have committed? And of course, the room was silent. It's hard to look in the mirror and to say, Oh Lord, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. I think it's the hardest thing we ever have to do as Christians. And it's even harder to do when we think about our own nation. When we think about things we've done as a people that perhaps we can never be forgiven for having done. And so I was thinking about what happened in Sunday school, and I heard a story on the radio that has haunted me ever since. It's from a guy named Paul Zimmer. Paul Zimmer was 19 years old in 1955, and he was assigned by the military to go out to a base called Camp Desert Rock in Nevada. And he had no idea what he was going to do until he got there. And as he arrived with a bunch of other really young officers, they said, you are here to watch us detonate atomic bombs. And at first he was a little terrified, but then he thought, wow, this is going to be a great way to pick up chicks later on in life. I mean, how many people can say that they've seen an atomic bomb? But it was not at all what he imagined it would be. Because about 3 o'clock in the morning, they'd wake him up from his bunk, him and all his friends, and they'd march him outside to a bus, and they'd drive them into the middle of the desert in the darkness. And they'd tell them to get out, and they said, go get in one of the trenches. They had dug these trenches into the desert earth, these long, thin slits, like scars in the desert sand, and there was only enough space for them to stand shoulder to shoulder and have their chin look out across the, across the way. And all of a sudden over loudspeakers, someone would say, cover your eyes, and the countdown would begin. And as he was telling the story, he said he was never truly afraid until he heard that first 10, 9, 8, all the way down. And he said that the first time he ever saw an atomic bomb explode, his hands were covering his tightly clenched eyes, and it was so bright that he could see the bones inside of his fingers, even with his eyes closed. 
He said the concussive wave of the explosion was so powerful that it completely destroyed the trench and they were buried alive in the desert dirt. And that when it finally finished, they had to literally crawl their way out of these tombs dug into the earth. And they looked up in the sky and they saw this blue and purple mushroom cloud, bigger than anything they had ever seen before. And then someone loudspeaker said, start marching forward. So Paul Zimmer and his friends had to march toward the detonation. They had to witness what had happened. Also, I've been told that Paul Zimmer saw eight atomic bombs exploded of different sizes with different implementations. Some of them were dropped from an airplane, some of them were buried on the ground, some of them were in a tower. He said the largest one he saw was three times the size of the one we dropped from the people of Hiroshima. It was so big that they had to wait for hours before they could start marching toward the blast zone. As he tells the story, he says that as soon as they got to the edge of the blast radius, there were animals in this giant circle. Birds that had been flying in the air, desert hares that had been running around, they were all blasted to the edge, and all of them were dead. And he said as he got closer and closer to the blast site, he saw less and less. On the outskirts, there were mannequins that had faces that had melted. There were trees and bushes that had become completely vaporized and evaporated. And really close, they had set up pigs, and they put army fatigue on them to see how the bodies handled it. And it was so awful. The blast was so devastating that it fused pigs' bodies together, and they were whimpering in pain. And after those explosions, Paul Zimmer went home. And for years, he wondered, why in the world did they have us do this? Because he was never asked to write a report. No one ever asked him what it was like to experience what he experienced. And 30 years later, in the 80s, he got his answer. The army said to him, Paul, we weren't watching the explosion. We were watching you. We as a nation sent teenagers into the desert to observe what their reaction to an atomic bomb might be. Paul Zimmer is a, a much older man, and he wanted to give this address because he realized he's one of the last living people in America who has seen an atomic bomb explode. He's one of the last living people who knows the devastation that was wrought, not only in the desert, but on innocent people halfway across the world. He's one of the only people who knows what it's like. And he said, I feel like I have to witness to the reckless absurdity of it all the marching into the desert, the being buried alive in the trench, the purple mushroom cloud in the sky, the melted mannequins. Because we live in a world that is still very much living in the shadow of nuclear war. We have nations all across the globe who feel like their finger is always hovering over that red button. It should come as no surprise that we have leaders all across the world who are threatening each other across things like the internet to end the world ten times over. We live in a world that is still so steeped in nuclear power. And for Paul Zimmer, he said, we have all these bombs. We have more than we could ever use. And I think we have them because one day we will use them. He said the problem is all of us have forgotten the devastating power of that thing. 
that I have. I know that this is not a really fun Advent sermon to hear. I know that if we had our choice, if I had my choice, we wouldn't be talking about nuclear war. We'd be singing about, oh, little town of Bethlehem. We'd be singing about, we wish you a Merry Christmas. I could put a fat suit on and dress up like Santa Claus. But the thing about Advent is it's a lot like what Paul Zimmer describes. Because Advent jolts us out of ordinary time. Isaiah speaks to us with his invasive news, and he says, We are nothing better than a filthy cloth. All of our righteous deeds, these things that we think are so important and so good to the world, at their best, they're nothing more than a filthy cloth. And that's a tough pill to swallow these days, particularly when most of us are moved more by feeling good than by doing good. Right? I mean, think about it. How many of us are hoping to be filled by those presents under the tree, those holes we feel, feel in our souls? How many of us have become so accustomed by a desire to judge that we have forgot what it means to repent? How many of us are so stuck in the darkness of Advent that we don't even know what the light of Christ looks like anymore. If we're honest with ourselves, we don't want to think about nuclear war at this most wonderful time of the year. We want something happy and something peppy. But I think that Paul Zimmer's witness is just as good as Isaiah's because the hope of Christmas has not looked away from the darkness, but instead straight into it. After all, that is the message of the Incarnation. God comes to us in the flesh, in the brokenness of this world, to redeem the world. As Christians, we go through the cycle every year. Advent, to Lent, to Easter, to ordinary time, back to Advent. But as a people, we are forever stuck in the time of Advent. In this darkness of Advent, between the first arrival of God's Son in Bethlehem and God's Son's final arrival in the new heaven and the new earth. We are stuck between the way things are and the way things ought to be until Christ comes in victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. But there is hope during this dark and strange Advent time. Hope that comes from an unexpected place. We can put our trust in princes and politicians and things like plutonium, but we will always be disappointed. We cannot receive lasting comfort from a broken world of ours that feels like it's always hinging on the next vote in Congress, like it's always hinging on the next push of a button. Our hope and comfort must come from another place, a place beyond our ability to grasp or comprehend, a place of humiliation and exaltation, a place that is both beginning and end, a place that isn't even a place. Our hope can only come from God. Hope in God is a strange and a vexing and a transformative thing. Hope in God comes with a broken heart willing to be mended. Hope in God comes when we are able to look in the mirror and say with honesty, I am a sinner. Hope in God comes when we realize that God is always the light in the darkness, but without darkness... We'll never be able to see the light. The good news that we anticipate on Christmas will come. 
and it will be brighter than any atomic blast, and it will fundamentally change everything about this world. God will come again and tear open the heavens. God will reorient the world in such a way that the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. God's justice will rain down like waters. God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. God will destroy death forever. As Christians, we wait. We wait in the shadow of the cross. We wait in the darkness of Advent. But we also know the end of the story. We know that greater things are still to come. We know that only God can shake the foundations of the earth. We know that hope in God is unlike anything else in existence. We know all of this because we know that the promise in Mary's womb, it comes to fruition in the empty tomb. So I offer this dark word to you on this day in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever.